Welcome to the Band of One Podcast. I am Riley Wilson, and this podcast is designed for anybody that wants to become a solo performer or maybe become a more successful solo performer by avoiding a lot of the pratfalls and mistakes myself and many of my contemporaries have made. I've got over 50 years of live performance experience, and I'm going to include the information I've learned as well as things that I've learned from other working pros to help you make this actionable and enjoyable. If you like what we do, please share it. Today I have a, a longtime friend, a great musician, a great entertainer who's made several different moves in his career, which I'm really delighted to talk about, my good buddy David Fortune. David, welcome. Hello, Riley. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How are things in South Texas, my friend? Uh, extremely hot. <laughs> yes, we uh, we're that's why I'm wearing the Hawaiian shirt today because I think it's going to be 106 here in Frisco, Texas, and uh, we're about 20 minutes north of downtown Dallas, as you know, and you're way, way down almost to Mexico, right? Well, I'm a, I can almost see the border from where I am. Wow! And I and I have on a Hawaiian shirt today because that's the only thing that I wear since I moved down here. I'm a few miles <laughs> away from. Uh, south padre island and a few miles away from spacex and down here when people want to get really dressed up they put on a black hawaiian shirt and that's considered dress wear <laughs> <laughs> that's wonderful that's wonderful um so i've got so many questions i almost don't know where to begin a little background for those folks that don't know you or me um david uh, had actually taken guitar lessons with me many years ago when he was doing a willie nelson show called the other willie and he's had opportunity over the years to play a wide variety of types of events, types of locations, bands, solo. And he's changed his solo act recently, which I've also done. And so we'll talk about reinvention a little bit later. But let's begin at the beginning. First of all, why does a nice guy like yourself get mixed up with the guitar and singing anyway? <laughs> it goes, well, the, the same reason that most of us did. Um, after going to a number of dances when I was a teenager, I noticed that all the girls like the guitar players. And I thought, well, hey, let's see. I've got well, one hobby already, and that's cars. I can use a second hobby, and that's girls. And so I decided it was time to learn how to play the guitar. So a buddy of mine and I sat down, and we taught ourselves and each other how to play. Neither one of us were very good, but we were good enough to get uh, gigs first gig the first band i had when i was 16 years old turned out to be our school dance there were we didn't know they were going to have 800 people there we thought there might be 100 kids show up turned out to be 800 people and we were all as nervous as in a cat in a room full of rocking chairs but we did just fine found out it was just great and then later in life and and by the way they applauded and at the end of the evening they gave us money uh, years later, I went out and tried golf, embarrassed myself all day long. Nobody applauded. Everybody laughed. And at the end of the afternoon, it cost me a lot of money. So I decided guitar was much better than golf. I've been doing it on and off ever since. <laughs> I have an old friend uh, named Dan Henderson, and uh, he was a DJ for many years. He did voiceovers for many, many years. And his youngest son was involved in golf when we became friends in the late 90s. And he asked me one time, he says, Riley, do you golf? And I said, no. He said, good, don't start. It's expensive and frustrating and costs a lot of money. And I said, Dan, I'm a musician. I don't have a lot of money and I don't need any more frustration in my life. So that was the end of golf and me. Yeah. Um, but let's, let's talk about it. First of all, where did you grow up? Are you from Texas originally? No, I'm not. I'm from Wichita, Kansas originally. Okay. Which no one knows where that is. So I always tell people, 
Kansas City. Oh, okay. They know where Kansas City is. But what I, Wichita is exactly in the Midwest. I grew up in a suburb there. Typical Midwestern town uh, in those days. The only thing going on was bands. And we did the same thing that everybody else did. I, it's called four-walling it. We would go rent a hall, plaster posters all over the place, um, get our friends to do. Well, there was no security in those days. Get our friends to take tickets and all that. And we had a little tour going up around the area there. So That's incredible. So when you started playing the guitar, what kinds of music were you were you doing and how did you learn it? You just you mentioned you had a friend. Did you get like a Mel Bay book or something like that to just do it or how did that work? Well, really, we got a Mel Bay book, which was too complicated for us. We couldn't understand it. So we sat down with the record player. And this is so long ago. We sat down with the record player. We'd pick out the songs we liked from the radio, buy the record, put it on, listen to it for about 10 seconds, lift the arm up and figure out what they were doing, which would take another an hour. And then we'd put it back down and go to the next section. And we just kept doing that. Oh, I think we started when we were 13 or 14. And what actually motivated me was watching Ed Sullivan. And I'm a few years older than you. So I was there. I was 13 years old the night that Ed Sullivan had the Beatles on. Yes. Oh, my goodness. Everybody just went nuts over them. And I thought that really looks terrific. In fact, uh, I had tried guitar lessons before that with the neighborhood guitar teacher. And he loaned me a guitar, but the action was terrible. The strings were rusty. It was horrible. It made my fingers bleed. And after a couple of weeks, I just said, I don't think I can do this. But I watched Paul McCartney playing that bass. And I thought, aha, there's only four strings there. And they look a lot fatter than those guitar strings. Because I didn't realize I was playing a terrible guitar. I thought they were all that bad. And so I went and bought a nice bass. And, and in fact, I still got it. That's a 63 Gibson. And uh, bought that, started learning to play that. He started learning to play guitar. And so we sort of learned together. And for a number of years, I primarily played bass because I was so much better at it than guitar. But it was we were just learning and teaching each other. And it was all completely self-taught. And what we would do is we had a little cheap tape recorder. We would record ourselves. And when it sounded more or less like the song, we'd say, okay, we can add that one to our list. It was wow. very long and hard. Wait, it's a hard way to do it. Absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, let me ask, by the way, note to self, don't record any more podcasts on Tuesdays when they're picking up the garbage outside. <laughs> um, so were you, 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 I know that you've sung and you're an excellent singer. Did you do that from the very beginning with the bass? Uh, some, but on a lot of songs, it was really hard because I, for whatever reason, it's much harder to play bass. And you could probably explain that to us all, but it's much harder to play bass and sing than it is to play guitar and sing. Yes. And it's something to do with the syncopation. So I did some singing, but there were some songs I just simply couldn't do and somebody else had to sing them. Absolutely. I get that. And, and of course, playing and singing is a challenge anyway, under the best of circumstances. Yeah. Yes, it is. So uh, let, let, me, let me ask another question. The very first gig you guys ever have, the very first gig, you have 800 people. <laughs> and yes. I, I know you and I both have played for less than 800 people at a time. But <laughs> you told me something during our lessons years ago that I have never forgot. It's always stuck with me. Because um, you were thinking about, well, gosh, if I can play for 800 people the first time, I, I probably have a shot at this. 
And you said that you talked to your dad about this, and he mentioned something about feeling lucky. Can you talk about that? Well, uh, you know, I dad was wanting me to be an engineer or something useful and productive, and he was a product of uh, he was a teenager during the Depression, and although we had a ranch and a farm outside of Wichita. Uh, they never missed a meal, but the, he remembered the depression distinctly. So he thought everybody needs some sort of a useful trade or profession. And he didn't consider uh, music or guitar playing either one of those things. And his advice to me when we were talking about it was, okay, can you control how good you are? Because the guys that you're listening to on the radio are and buying their CDs, they're really good. Can you control how good you are? And I said, well, yeah, you know, if you take enough lessons, and you practice enough, you can improve and, you know, do all that and get as good as they are. And he said, okay, that's great. Can you control how lucky you are? And I said, uh, no, that's impossible. And he said, right. And he said, those guys have two things going for them. Number one, they're really good. And number two, they're really lucky. They're in the right place at the right time with the right people and got to know the right people. And that's called luck. And he said, what if you're not in the right place at the right time? And interestingly enough, Joe Walsh is my age and is also from Wichita. He got lucky. He moved to, I believe it was Cleveland, and he got lucky and he took off with the James gang. But dad really made an impression when he said, can you control how lucky you are? Because sometimes when that first band would go out, we would get huge crowds. And other times we were playing to each other. We'd spend a bunch of money renting a hall and doing all that, and no one shows up because there's something else going on somewhere else. So he said, and he said, my advice to you, and he compared it to golf. He said, music is like golf. It's an absolutely wonderful hobby, but it's a rough way to make a living. And he said, if you're not lucky, you're it's going to be really hard, and that's going to be a long road. He said, why don't you get a profession that you can rely on for income and then do the music as a hobby. Cause he said, you can do it as a hobby your entire life. Whereas if you're doing it full time, he said, you're going to burn yourself out. And what if you're not lucky? Cause of course, as a kid, I was assuming I would be lucky like everybody does. And he kept saying, but what if you're not? So I decided he's probably got a good point there. And I went and got a college degree. Now in your case, your degree was in music. And you didn't get luck. You did a lot of hard work and you've been able to make a living with music. But I had no intentions of go getting a degree in music because music theory absolutely stumped me. I just, you know, I, I could not connect with it. And so instead, I went and got a degree in business and I had a nice career. But my hobby on and off was always music, always playing in bands. Yeah, we'll we'll talk about that in a moment. First of all, I think your dad probably I think this information is good enough to have a TED talk about it, because there are a lot of times that people want to take a hobby and turn it into a profession. And you're right, it is a lot of hard work. But I think that also was incredibly wise on dad's part and also incredibly wise on your part to get the degree and do what you've done. But let's talk about bands for a moment, because I know you told me some very interesting stories about traveling from here in Texas when you were in the Dallas area. Uh, to places like Chicago and things like that. So talk about bands and kind of what prompted you to start leaning towards the solo act portion of the show. Well, I found out when, when I was a kid, I figured out pretty quick, probably by 18 years old, I knew 
that whoever owns the PA system and whoever owns the van to haul that PA system, because as you well know, they used to be huge, you know, we're all using these nice Bose sticks and all of that now, and they're light and the sound is fabulous. But, you know, those great big old electro voices and JBLs were gigantic. It took four guys to lift one of them, and you had to have a van to haul it in because you simply could not get them in cars. They were too big. So what that did is that always made me the leader of the band because I usually owned the PA system and had a van to haul it in. Well, now as a leader of the band, you it's sort of like being married to five other people at once. All of their problems are your problems. So when they have problems at home, it's your problem. When their car breaks down, it's your problem. You got to go get them because that lead player or drummer or whoever it is, you've got to have them with the band. You simply can't do it without them. And if some and if they're sick, God forbid, then you've got to scramble and find somebody who can fill in for them and do a halfway decent job. And but but there wasn't. But back when you and I were, you know, in our 20s, there was no alternative. There was no recordings. We didn't have any of that. You had to have a live person there doing the job with you and for you. And that things happened like, you know, uh, somebody would get hurt at work, break a leg. Okay, they're out of it for six months. They can't play. Um, one of the other guys runs off with someone else's wife. Well, now he's out of the band. You can't have him around. And all of those issues made bands difficult, but it was just part of the job because there was no way of getting around it. You had to do it. And um, I had, it was the same and it didn't matter whether you're 18 or 20 or 52. I uh, had, I had uh, set up a really great gig at a big venue. Everything's going perfect. We were doing a lot of hotel California and a lot of songs that had uh, long extended leads in them. And my lead guitar player gets a call from his corporation that says, and he had a really good job with some big corporation. They said, everyone has to be at corporate headquarters Friday morning. Anyone who is not there doesn't have a job. Well, Friday night, we had that huge gig and it was a big deal. He could not not go because this was a career job and he was making had an excellent income and a wonderful life. He had to go. I now and he got and he got noticed the evening before they said go get in the airplane right now so now I'm scrambling trying to find a lead player who can play all of his parts trying to think can we do it without him and so I went over and talked to the venue owner and he said look uh, when I came and saw you guys I hired you because of your overall sound if you're gonna have to do it without a lead player he said let's just cancel well oh so we had to cancel and of course he never, ever hired us again. <laughs> there was no chance with that. We were finished because he had decided that we were unreliable. And unfortunately, he told a lot of the other venue owners as well. So that really did hurt us. So whether you're 18 or 52 or 62, it doesn't matter. When you have a band, you have everyone else's problems. Now, I will tell you something. I'm 72 years old. Here's what happened to me recently, and I don't know if I told you this on the phone or not. Yes, I want you to share this because for those folks that are in bands that are contemplating going solo, this might give you additional ammunition to consider coming to the solo side of the fence. Okay. But yes, please. Well, this was uh, two or three years ago. I had put together a really good band because we only live a few miles away from South Padre Island, which is a resort island. The only thing they've got, there's condos, hotels, 
and outdoor bars, but they're not dive bars. They're really nice places and they don't charge any kind of a cover. So they've got, they're packed all the time. They've got a lot of people in there. We had this beautiful place, one of the nicer places that we were playing. And I'd put together a band with a friend of mine that lives at the same retirement resort that I do uh, playing bass and guitar, uh, had a keyboard player and a great drummer in one of our shows at our favorite place, the keyboard player had a stroke. And so the wow. show was over. We're now rushing him with the ambulance into the uh, emergency room and had to stick around because he had no family around. The only one was his wife and she had to make some serious medical decisions, not at a show, but a few months later, he, he survived, he came back and he was 99% as good as he had been before. Thank God. My drummer, who was had also been my drummer in the Willie Nelson tour, had a stroke at home, and he's never played again. And then the other guy ran off with someone else's wife, and I'm not making this up. Now, you'd think by our age, we'd be finished with that foolishness, but that was the same thing that happened to me when I was 25 years old. And it's like, oh, my God, this never changes, except instead of falling off a ladder and breaking their leg, band members are now having strokes. This is just this is just too much trouble because I've gone to a lot of trouble putting that band together and we did tons of rehearsals so we would sound good. And all of a sudden, now here I am by myself and starting over again down here. That's unbelievable. So, hey, let's face it. The last thing you want to do at the end of a gig when you should be packing up is to take a member to the hospital for a stroke. I mean, that's yes. that's no laughing matter. Um, one of the other things that before we before we move on to to you doing solo stuff now is that I know we were doing a Willie Nelson tribute here for a while and you were doing a lot of travel with that. That was the thing that kind of stunned me. And we're not talking about, you know, going to, to Durant, Oklahoma, which is a mile away. You were traveling to Chicago and places like that. How did you make all of that kind of thing work when, again, you've got the band, assuming that you've got the PA and you've got the, the vehicle, but that's still, that's arduous to do too, David. Well, it is very, very hard. The, the, the good news was that we were trying to be an exact duplicate of Willie's band and my agent and business manager and business partner, William Ware, Bill Ware of the William Ware Agency. Yes, yes. And that know him well. Yes, and you you know him and known him for longer than I have. Everything had to be absolutely identical, so we couldn't have 25-year-olds in that band. It had to be a band of older guys because all of Willie's guys, most of them were and are older than me. So I had to have older band members. So fortunately, I was able to find the guys I needed that were retired so they could travel with me. That's the good news. We could travel and we could go out for four or five days or a week. The bad news is, now you, what you've got, and, and what I did in that band was Willie has a big band, and he's got a harmonica player. It's very hard to find. I don't care if you live in Dallas. It's hard to find a reliable harmonica player. He had a piano player. It's hard to find a good piano. It's that getting that many people together and traveling together. The more you add, the more complicated, difficult, and unreliable it comes. So I used the backing tracks for the harmonica and piano parts and, and, and quite a bit of the lead parts and the electric lead parts, and then had a bass and drummer that always traveled with me. And then sometimes I had a rhythm guitar that went as well. And I like Coldplay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but the problem with that was now you've got 
three old men or four old men who are traveling from Dallas to Chicago to set up and do do the show, tear down, go get a few hours of sleep, get back in. And I had a big band van that worked out really well, had captain seats and all that. So two could drive and two could sleep. But it wasn't that comfortable and you don't really sleep when you're in the road. And so you got old men now that are setting this all up, doing the show, doing a 90 minute show, which is an exact duplicate of Willie's show. And we poured out the energy for the audiences. Then you've got to hang around with the audience for a while, sign autographs, you know, shake hands and do all that. So they'll want to have you back. You know that you have to do that every week. And then you're packing up and leaving a few hours of sleep. And doing it again. So we would go to Chicago. And then the next night we would be in Rockford. Then the next night we would be in Mankato, Minnesota, and then someplace else. And then you got to turn around. And now you're a thousand miles from home and you got to turn around. And all these poor, worn out old guys have got to drive back home again, rest up a little bit, and then go out and do it again. Because Bill Ware was an absolutely fabulous agent and he kept us as busy as we wanted to be. The other issue with that. If you're the owner of the band, and, and in my case, I was the primary character in the band, and it was a, it was, it was, we were dead ringer impersonators. All of my guys played the exact same instruments that Willie's uh, band played. They had the same guitars, same basses, same everything, dressed just and even looked just like the guys in Willie's band. Well, the the problem with doing eight five, six, or seven, or eight gigs in a row is it gets so expensive because you got to put all these guys up in a hotel and, you know, guys don't mind sharing a hotel room, which we obviously had to, to keep costs under control. But the first time you say, Hey, uh, could you guys, would you guys mind sharing a bed? Uh, absolutely not. No, 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 no. They, I went down to the front office and they said, there's extra rooms get, get me a, this room's only got one bed in it. Get me a separate room. Yeah. You know, you have all the, all the costs and all the expenses. And what would sometimes happen to me as the guy who had organized the whole thing is my band. I did pay them extremely well because that's one of the things Bill taught me. He said, if you pay them poorly, they're going to be unreliable. If you pay them well, they're going to be very reliable. And they were, I never had anybody uh, fizzle out on me, but all that expense and then gasoline, depending on the price of gasoline, mm -hmm. you out and do seven or eight shows in a row, you come back absolutely completely exhausted and find out you really didn't make very much money. Everybody else did. Bill made money. The musicians made money. The hotels made money. The restaurants and gas companies made money. But I came home with not nearly as much as I should have had. So that, and that's the risk there. And that's one of the drawbacks of doing it with the band. Now we were extremely well paid because it was a full band and Bill was able to get us gigs that I never could have got on my own because of uh, clients that had been clients of his for years. And he would guarantee them uh, what, in fact, what he, and Bill was not a 15% agent. He was a 33% agent because he wow. really, he really managed you and he did get you gigs and he would get me in places we would never get in on our own. And he would get five or six times as much uh, money as I would have been able to get on my own. So he was worth every penny that he charged. But when you add all those things up, you, you know, it's going through the back of my mind, you know, I could go off and do a show by myself and end up with more money. Though, in fact, the ones I enjoyed the most with Bill 
were the flyout gigs. And that's when he would have fly me to someplace. The, the client, of course, was covering all my expenses. And all I would take was my guitar and the backing tracks and do it solo by myself because on those there was no expense for me. And so whatever, whatever we agreed to, they covered all my expense. And then of course, you know, I was paid. And those are the ones that I actually did the best on because I didn't have, and and I wasn't exhausted because I wasn't sharing one quarter of the driving. So in fact, I have a, I have a friend that uh, for a very short time I played in his band and he was telling me he's not, world renowned but he's got out eight or ten albums and you can edit this out if uh you know if you don't want it in there his name was jackson taylor he has since retired but he told me this was several years ago that one year he made a quarter of a million dollars and that when it was all everything was paid for he had twenty five thousand dollars left over and i said jack you can make that much being a greeter at walmart and he said i know and he was exhausted and his uh, he had ended up getting divorced because he was gone all the time. A couple of years before that, he had made a half a million dollars gross and he had 50,000 left for himself. And he said, that's just not enough. And so he has now retired and he doesn't travel anymore. And he does. He lives in Denver and he does some small gigs around there because he doesn't have all the expense and all the trouble. Let's pause that right there. We're going to wrap up. This will be the first installment of our interview with David Fortune. Again, you've been listening to the Band of One podcast. I am Riley Wilson. If you like what we do, please subscribe and don't forget to tell your friends. If you've got ideas for upcoming episodes, please contact me through the Band of One podcast page on Facebook. You can also email me directly through our webpage, which is guitarmadesimpler.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time.